Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today, we have two parents from Genspect, Dee and Marie. Marie is a Hispanic retired educator, wife, and a mother who lives in the southeast of the USA. She is currently a leader in her state for parents of rapid onset gender dysphoria kids. Dee is the mother of a 17-year-old daughter with rapid onset gender dysphoria. She and her partner adopted their daughter and her younger sister from China when she was 13 months old at 15 pounds, unable to crawl or hold a bottle. As a toddler, her daughter suffered night terrors and vivid flashbacks. She has been diagnosed with pre-adoption trauma. Dee and Marie represent Genspect. I welcome Dee and Marie to Savage Minds. You are two parents who have children who have identified as trans and you both believe that your children, although ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, is not officially or yet a pathology that's been recognized, but we'll get to that later, but who recognizes what, you both believe that your children have rapid onset gender dysphoria. And I would like to hear from each of you about how you came to know your child identified as transgender, what you think led up to that, because a lot of times, as we know, parents are left in the dark. And give us a little bit of background for both of your stories. Yes, uh, I am married, have two children, um, an oldest daughter and a younger son who was diagnosed with Asperger's uh, back when Asperger's was an official DSM diagnosis. Um, so we knew since he was six or seven that he had this neurodivergency and he had social awkwardness, but he was very much a stereotypical boy. He put himself in that box. All of his interests had to do with trains, with cars, uh, Legos. Um, later on, it was Minecraft, Mario games. Um, he was very um, particular about not wanting girl things or, um, uh, you know, anything that was not stereotypical uh, male. And my husband is a nerd, a computer guy. Uh, he's not, you know, the macho sports type. So it wasn't anything that was modeled to him. That was just the way he was. Um, when he was uh, 17, he had a pretty extreme trauma in our family. Um, I nearly died from a catastrophic illness and to the point that he had to go to the hospital to say goodbye to me because they weren't sure if I would make it through the night. Um, and after that trauma, uh, we noticed that he became very um, depressed. Um, he went into his room, basically just shut himself from the rest of the family. Uh, now, he had experienced what I would call little T trauma throughout his life uh, from bullying in school, you know, because of his autism and just his awkwardness and inappropriateness in the way he would behave and blurt out and, you know, just wasn't aware of what was um, bothersome or annoying to the other kids, but he always, always had a small group of boys who were friends with him, like-minded kids, several of them on the spectrum, 
So he wasn't um, a kid who was like alone without a friend in the world. Um, they loved him and accepted him. But at 17, he just shut himself down completely. Um, that was his junior year of high school. And I recovered, obviously. Um, but I had to go through intensive uh, therapies. And in some ways, everyone in the family became my caregiver for a season. And he had to drive me to therapy appointments when he wasn't in school uh, or drive me places because I couldn't drive. Um, and so he saw me as, I guess, as becoming very vulnerable. Um, when he was in his senior year, the depression seemed to have lifted. Um, he never wanted help didn't want to see a psychologist, didn't want medication, just shut down, uh, which wasn't uncommon, you know, with his autism. Um, but he became, as a senior, paralyzed by the thought of going to college. And we saw very clearly that he didn't want to grow up. He had a late puberty and uh, he liked girls, um, but the girls saw him as a friend, but not as a potential romantic interest and, you know, rejected him that way. And he just would not talk about college, would not write college essays. He, in English, we had to make accommodations because he was in an honors class. So they, it was all about college, but he wouldn't do it. Um, so we basically came up with a contract and we said, okay, you can skip uh, college for a year and do a gap year, um, but you are going to work full time. You are not going to stay home and play video games 24 seven. So at that point, he decided to go to a um, technical college for the first year. He blew it out of the water. He's, he excelled, Dean's list. He's a very, very smart kid, brilliant in uh, anything engineering and computers and anything technical, learning disabilities in some areas, brilliant in another, not very classic with, you know, spectrum kids. Um, and so he said, I want to go to university the following year. So he went to the university and within a couple months, we noticed that he started changing. You know, his hair started growing longer. Um, it was just something was just off. We saw some anime figurines that started appearing in his room where he had never before been into anime. Um, it just, um, the colors changed. He went from, you know, dark green, basically dark green t-shirt uniforms to pinks and purples. And um, so I asked him and I said, are you gay? You know, it's just all these things that were changing. And he said, how could you think that about me? No, I am not gay. I am asexual. I'm not interested in men or women. I have the sexual interest of that brick wall. But I knew something just wasn't quite right. Then he started talking about these two girls at the university. He lived at home because he didn't want to live in the dorms. And he talked about these two girls who were his friends. And these girls were in a gender studies class. Um, so we realized now that they became his cheerleaders. And uh, so at first, I think he was sort of identifying as queer. Um, you know, he was wearing the rainbow pins and... Um, you know, just all uh, the unicorns and the rainbows and all that stuff. And, and uh, then the pandemic hit and these girls disappeared out of his life. Now, we did notice he was staying up 
really, really late hours. But, you know, here he is, he's 18, um, you know, getting ready to be 19, uh, you know, don't necessarily want to micromanage his life. They have to, you know, grow up. Um, we had computer filters in our home. We had Circle, which is supposed to be a great filter. Nothing. There were no clues whatsoever. It was just like school materials or, um, you know, innocent type of video games. Um, when he was, then, then his behaviors just started escalating. We noticed that he was twisting his eyebrows. I'm still thinking, okay, I think he's gay or he's exploring, you know, being gay or something, you know? Um, and, and then um, next thing I know, something seems really, really odd, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was that made him look so different. And one day we were driving somewhere and he said to me, um, I have something to tell you, but, I, but I'm afraid that, um, you know, you, you're going to get mad or something, or you're going to reject me or something. I don't know how he phrased it, but the idea was that I was not going to be happy about it. And he said, I have gender dysphoria. And that means that I feel that I am a woman trapped in a man's body. So to my credit, I was shocked because I was sure that the next question, next thing out of his mouth was going to be mom and gay. And then when he said that, I was like, what? Tom, I'm going to call him Tom, not Tom, like anybody, but Tom, um, you know, the most you know, nerdy masculine boy, not toxic masculinity jock, but, you know, just the most nerdy boy that there could be out there. I asked him, what does that mean? And how long have you known this? And where do you see yourself going from here? And he, he was just still telling me I'm confused and I am exploring it. And I am, um, you know, I'm very scared, very, very scared about it, but I just feel this is so strong. And he started mentioning all these things for why he thought he was a woman, which were crazy. Um, like, I am sensitive. Yeah, your dad is too. I'm like a really nice guy. And, you know, yeah, your dad is too. You know, I mean, I'm not like sporty. And so everything he would say, I was like, that's the way. And then he said other things. Like, I've always been uncomfortable in my body. I said, because you felt like a woman. No, not that. Just the way my body fit with my head and the way my arms. I said, that's autism. You know, I said, you had to have therapy when you were little for years to connect your body with how you felt and your spatial ability and your interoception and all this stuff. No, 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 no. So kind of speeding it up from that point, um, I've vetted several um, mental health providers, about three, um, to make sure that they were non-affirming, that they were not just going to take this delusion and run with it. And we are, all three were acceptable to us. Um, I, we offered therapy and he said, yes, he would take it. And then he, he chose the person that he wanted to meet with. And uh, this was a um, mental health, a PhD um, therapist who his approach was wait, see, push the pause button, let's explore other things. And my goal is to keep him safe. 
you know, say from medical. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he very much was in the watchful waiting approach, 100%. So um, he saw this therapist for a year, um, refusing to engage on anything that was not trans. Didn't want to discuss autism. He was officially diagnosed with depression, would not talk to a psychiatrist or get on medication because, because hashtag trans, you know, everything is a trans exception and everything is the trans reason. Uh, would not talk about trauma, would not talk about anything that was not what he's finding on the internet, what he's, you know. And this therapist had a wonderful working relationship with us. Um, our son knew that we would go talk to him and he would give permission of what he could share with us. And honestly, he was using the therapist to feed us, you know, what he didn't want to say to us, but it was good because we were getting a lot of good information. Um, but at one year of seeing the therapist against all advice, he went to an OBGYN out of state and on the first visit got hormones. He got it testosterone blocking injections and he got spirolactane and he got estrogen, estradiol. Um, and within like eight weeks, his body started changing. And we had drawn a line in the sand that said, okay, you can dress however you want, whatever. The hair, the eyebrows, the whatever. Okay, we did have an agreement coming out of your room. We want that neutral gender. You know, we didn't, we, we were not okay with him being like all femme and, you know. Um, we were neutral on what we called him to, um, but hormones are a no-no. If you do hormones, you can't live here in our home um, because to us, they're drugs. They may be, you know, you might have a prescription for them, but it's no different than if you were doing illegal drugs. You're harming your body. It is hurting you. Um, you know what he told me? It's just going to go to the delusion, the depth of the delusion, what these kids are being told. He said, these hormones will not harm me because I am a woman. I am putting in my body what my body needs and it's not producing. Those studies that you mentioned, that's for the people who are not really women. These are the people who think they're women or who think they're trans, but they're really not. Um, so to wrap this uh, presentation, we see our son as both someone who is in a cult and someone who's also addicted to drugs and addicted to this delusion. Um, he's not fully estranged from us, but we don't really communicate. Uh, you know, he only answers texts if there's absolutely necessary and transactional. Um, so we haven't seen him in like two months, but we know where he is and he's in a safe environment. Um, you know, and he sees people that we know and they talk to us. So he still sees the therapist. Um, so basically that's where we're at. I'm going to follow up with questions after Dee uh, discusses her situation. Then we'll go from there. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, so I'm married with two children, two daughters that we adopted from China. Uh, one is 17 and the other one is almost 12. When we adopted the 17-year-old, she was 13 months old, weighed only 15 pounds, uh, could not crawl or hold the bottle. We seriously thought that maybe her arms had been broken. We, we just didn't know. 
Um, when we brought her home to the United States, I, I took her to a doctor in Manhattan, Dr. Jane Aronson, who specializes um, in orphans. And she diagnosed her as a failure to thrive and said, basically, time. Um, I now have learned that that orphanage was a horrible place and they subsequently demolished it. Um, so, but, you know, she bonded right away and, um, you know, seemed to be thriving within weeks. She was able to hold the bottle after 11 days. She was able to crawl and she was walking by the time she was 15 months. So, you know, that was all the good stuff. But what followed were years in her toddler years of night terrors and flashbacks. And one flashback was so vivid um, that she could not sleep in her room for three months. She had to sleep on the floor next to our bed. Um, the only thing that got her back in her room was Santa Claus on Christmas Eve telling her, I really need to see you in your bed tonight. Um, so by eight years old, she took me aside and very diplomatically told me that she loved us and she knew we loved her, but she didn't want to hurt my feelings. Um, but she felt that a piece of her heart was missing and she needed to know who she was. And that really blew me away. She had just turned eight years old. Um, so for the next year, she was preoccupied with the fact that um, she was adopted. And, um, and, you know, she was getting a lot of comments at school. Kids, are, kids are, can be cruel, you know. That's not your real mom. That's not your real dad. That's not your real sister. Um, so, and she's a very gentle, empathic, um, sensitive child. And so that coupled with some racial microaggressions over the years, I think really built up. Um, as she approached puberty, she became socially awkward. She wasn't like that when she was little. She got along with pretty much everybody and, and was uh, able to inject herself into social situations. Um, in eighth grade, she was obsessed with a boy and it was uh, unfortunately a case of unrequited love, real heartbreaker. Um, she was in a small private school until eighth grade. She had excellent grades. In fact, was some kind of presidential award um, recipient. Um, but a couple of things started really escalating in 2016. I myself had major surgery. Um, it wasn't life. The condition itself was life-threatening, but the surgery was not. And I was able to get through it with flying colors. And then the 2016 election really threw her into a tailspin. Um, she came to me that morning and asked who won. And when I told her, she said, is he going to send me back? And um, I said, no, you're, you're here. And we were actually domesticating the adoption the following month. And she was just an anxious, nervous wreck. She really thought the judge was gonna throw down the gavel and send her back. And there was no talking her out of this. Fortunately, he said, you're a forever family. You know, we're just putting the, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Um, but I started noticing some anxiety on her part. So she went from a tiny school to a large high school. And, um, you know, really didn't know anybody there and then came upon a circle of friends that she seemed to like. And they seemed nice enough when we met them. Um, but one of them started to stand out as being a little different with um, very short hair and gender non-conforming clothing. And things started really changing by the spring of 2019. Now, we had just come back from spring break and 
She had just purchased several bikinis. Um, in fact, I had to say no to several of her choices, um, but, um, and began the summer wearing those bathing suits to the pool. Um, but in June of 2019, she declared herself as bisexual, which was a very awkward dinner conversation because our then nine-year-old wanted to know what that meant. <laughs> and when I said, well, you like boys and girls, the nine-year-old declared that she was bisexual too. So now it's getting complicated. Um, <laughs> but um, at the middle of the summer, but this friend was hanging around her more and more. And I became very concerned about my daughter's attachment to this child. And um, by the end of the summer, my daughter was no longer wearing the bathing suit. She was covering herself up with hoodies um, and declared herself gay in August and in September was trans. Um, we, she was also suffering from anxiety and panic attacks. So we had taken her to the first therapist in September. And after four visits, that therapist demanded that I take that child to the suicide unit of the local hospital. And I just had, this is so outside my league. I just did what I was told, like a dummy. Um, she was discharged the next day. She wasn't a threat. She wasn't, she didn't have a bona fide plan to kill herself. Uh, the psychiatrist who took a look at her said, I think this is related to her adoption issue, um, which I always thought it was. I think that primal wound runs deep in this child. So, um, we switched to another therapist in October and unbeknownst to us, she was affirming, but by February, that therapist basically said, I can't do this. I can't handle this. This is outside of my league. Um, but just a month before I had accessed her iPhone because I felt that she wasn't getting better, that it was getting worse. And I downloaded 300 screenshots of text messages between her and the friend where she told the friends some really bizarre things like my mother forced me to wear corsets. My mother forced me to wear dresses. My mother forced me to wear pink. And the friends, um, the friend's response, instead of just sympathizing said, you know, I hate your effing mother or effing hate your mother. Your mother's textbook abusive. All your friend's mothers have a safe house for you. So um, that was among other things. I mean, and then this friend was showing her lesbian porn and was, um, labeling her as a sexually dominant position. Um, it was just, it, it was the confluence of emotions. I can't even begin to describe. It was like a stab in the heart, but fear as well about what is going on. So we switched to another therapist who affirmed her on the very first visit. Uh, we fired her. So we went through three. And then in March of 2020, after all the research I had been doing, I found Lisa Lippman, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this seemed to fit squarely into that description. And I contacted Sasha Ayad, um, who's very well known in this world. We, my husband and I had a great consult with her and we had just selected a psychologist who specializes in body dysmorphia and anorexia because this has some similarities. Um, and she said that was a good choice. And uh, she's been treating our child since April, 2020 on an almost weekly basis. And how um, old is your child now? 17. Um, I also found that she's been following um, a plastic surgeon based in Miami who uses TikTok to glamorize mastectomies of healthy breasts as life-changing and effective and risk-free. In fact, wisdom teeth uh, removal is less safe 
I mean, more, yeah, right, okay. So uh, anyway, um, she diagnosed her with pre-adoption trauma. And it makes sense given what I know, what we witnessed once they placed her in my arms. Um, the, the brain must've been rewired. The Netherlands last year reported that the first wave of these girls were Chinese adoptees. I called our agency and asked the post placement whether they had heard from any other parents whose hair was on fire like mine. And they said, no, but a number of the adoptees had transitioned. Um, so there's something here that's going on and it could be this self-loathing because basically they were abandoned because they were female, um, you know? It's, it seems like what happened, I mean, when you wrote that she could not hold a bottle, Right. What happened to her? Did you find out? No, but the BBC did a documentary on one of these institutions. There weren't a whole lot of them. I could tell you that a lot of them were pretty good. My brother adopted from one and the orphanage director not only invited them in, but took them out to lunch. We were not allowed to see the orphanage at all. Um, but they did a documentary called The Dying Rooms. Um, and they, it was a, what they call a social welfare institute that housed not only babies, but the elderly. And she was in one of those. So the elderly were dying and the babies were dying. Um, they probably, like this, this documentary showed them in boxes, the babies were in boxes and nobody held them. They just rested the bottle. So the baby had to kind of reach up with their head to get the bottle. Um, so the, I, I can't imagine because it, it's too crazy for me to try to think how bad it could be because it hurts so much. I hurt for her. She's in extraordinary emotional pain. And as a mother, I feel utterly helpless um, through this whole thing. And, and, you know, and she was abandoned at 13 days old. So somebody held on to her for 13 days. And then to have that pulled out from under you, you know, and being thrust into this horrible place, it's got to rewire a baby's brain. It's, it's got to do some kind of damage. And, now my second child seems to be doing fine. She'll be 12. Um, she, she just has a different outlook on life. She's a different personality. She's, she's just completely different. And as it turns out, 23andMe confirmed that these girls are distantly related. Go figure. But- um, Who confirmed that they're distantly related? 23andMe, the DNA company. Oh, right, okay. And in fact, my oldest crib mate is my youngest's third cousin. And I have other friends whose children are related to my youngest. Um, but my oldest, probably that's going to be hard to find because Dr. Aronson said that her umbilical cord was a home job. In other words, there's no record of her birth and probably born in a rural area to very poor parents. So they're probably not sophisticated enough to say, you know, here's my DNA. Um, so who, who knows, but I'm, I'm still looking. I have found her relatives, the closest is a fourth cousin. They live in the Philippines, believe it or not. not and very few adoptees, mostly people who have families in Laos, Thailand, the Philippines. Um, so, so who knows, but you know that I'm still working on it because I think she needs that connection. But she is, I, I have to say, so she's presenting, you know, we, we, oh, we had to run interference with the school. That's a whole other subject, um, but she, um, looks like she's very diminutive in size, which bothers her a lot. And people comment on it all the time. So that affects her even more. Um, she's 
getting better in terms of her emotional state, uh, the doctor told us this is a marathon. It's not going away anytime soon, but we've seen improvement. And I spoke to the doctor last week and she thought that we're on a good trajectory. It's just, we have to be patient. Uh, so we have some good days and we have some bad days. And our goal is to try to keep peace in the house and to keep her from doing anything um, medically or surgically um, when she turns 18, because we know that we lose, we lose our, our agency, our authority. She's afraid of growing up, which a lot of these kids are. Um, and she's not sure she's ready for college and that's fine. We're keeping all options on the table. If she wants to stay home, we're great. We want her to be home with us while she's going through this extraordinary crisis. Um, so I, I am only cautiously optimistic. These are two powerful stories. I tell you, I have been working on this issue for a decade now and I've, I interviewed Lisa Litton many times for my stories and then she oh, yeah. the show. And one thing is clear to me, the fact mm -hmm. that she was bullied for her work, for her research. There is a huge, well-funded, well-politicized lobby behind this. And one has to wonder why, when searching out help on Google, a lot of results are not showing people like Lisa Littman right. or other specialists. What is it happening- It took me six months. It took me six months yeah. and I have a legal background. I do research. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. Six I've months. Been, I've been writing on this for 10 years and I tell you a lot of people on Twitter will say, uh, didn't you write a piece about this? So I have to actually Google myself because sometimes it's faster than my using my muckrack database because it, it's a long thread, let's say. And so I'll Google myself. I'll remember sort of the title or the topic and it's hard to get Google mm -hmm. to list voices of yes. people who are not kowtowing to this. And, you know, when I spoke to Lisa the first time, I was aware that she was being no platformed as it were and her work was being questioned ethics were questioned when everything she did fit in with the ethics such as uh, there aren't studies being done on children that are actually being done on children per se they do questionnaires through parents so she was called out on something that is done for every single study of that nature mm -hmm. but forget facts right. right because this is a lobby of forget facts. it's a cult it's a cult uh, well, it is. yes, when you said it earlier, Marie, I, I thought about that because we've used this amongst many of the other women that I've spoken to over the years. We've referred this as a cult. About eight years ago, I was talking with another woman about this and she compared this to the satanic uh, rituals that happened mm -hmm. in the States where similarly, a cult-like manifestation occurred. People were wrongfully accused of things that were in fact not ever the case. So right. lies were built on, a, on more lies. And the problem is, as we know from Ronald Reagan, if you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it. Yeah. And he was a genius about that because it sort of become a mantra for not only his era, but this. And I have spoken to many families. I've, I've spoken to detransitioners. I've spoken to trans individuals who identify themselves as transgender, who as some of the feminists will say are on our side, but I have some real categorical problems with what it even means to be transgender in terms of a diagnostic 
positionality. Because as you said, Marie, it's, of course, you have a child that says, but I'm nice, or but I like playing with this toy and not that. This has nothing to do with being female or male. Right. I thought we got over that struggle in the 70s. That was the era of free to be you and me. Now somehow our late capitalism has brought us back to a medicalization of an entire generation of kids and young adults because the difference between 17 and 25 is not a lot when you're talking about brain development, right? right? Yes. And, and then peer pressure. Yes, and I, I wanted to, uh, a couple of things that you uh, brought up are very interesting. One is the fact that um, when we're supposed to be who we want to be, all of a sudden there's no room for gender nonconformity. Um, you know, where are the tomboys? They are gone. I mean, now basically you become trans if you show in any way that you are a girl who wants to dress like a boy or play sports like a boy. And uh, the same thing with the boys, the sensitive, artistic, you know, type of boys. That's one thing. But the other thing too is once, I'm speaking for the boys, but once these boys go into this, I'm a, I'm a woman world and they are being told that they are and that they can turn into one, which is the most harmful thing because that's where all the medicalization and everything comes in. But my son has hair down to his hips. Um, I mean, neither my daughter nor I have hair that long. Uh, I never have. And he shapes his entire body as if women don't have body hair. Like where literally he's turning himself into an anime character because no real woman looks that way. And particularly with boys, so much of this in our mom's groups of boys is driven by anime, anime porn, hypno porn. Uh, you know, it's very cartoonish. Um, and they're trying to, to imitate and emulate these cartoon characters that are completely un- non-human and unrealistic. They're not even looking at like mom or sister or friends as the females that they would want to be. They're this crazy, it seems like over-sexualized or cartoonish. The boys particularly are nerdy, um, you know, high IQ on the spectrum or, or somehow neurodivergent, socially awkward kids. A lot For a lot of them, the gateway to trans, um, besides the there's always seems to be a cheerleader, like a girl who kind of comes alongside them, but it's the internet. They, it, they go through video games. For a lot of them, the gateway is anime and uh, anime pornography and um, uh, hypno porn, hypnotic messages. We actually had Dr. Stephen Hassan come and talk to us. Um, he's uh, probably one of the world's um, you know, most respected cult experts. And uh, what's interesting is we had sent him, the parents had sent him some videos that they had um, found in their kids' computers of anime hypnosis, hypnotic uh, porn, and um, different types of anime. And he took a look at them and he said, um, I had to keep pausing uh, the video because I would start going into a trance. This is a man who has done cults for over 40 years and who was in one himself. Um, and 
he said the quality of this hypnosis videos, this trans hypnosis videos, he says is something that is not just like someone in a basement, um, you know, doing this, he says is high, highly, highly sophisticated intelligence type of work that someone is doing. Um, so these kids are watching these videos going into trances that are telling him, you are a woman, you're a woman, your hormones are coming, your surgery is coming. I mean, they're literally being hypnotized and put into trances, listening to this stuff and watching these things. And what I said too, is that these boys are trying to imitate um, being like anime characters, it's cartoonish over-sexualized characters with hair. My son has hair down to his hips, um, you know, and shaved his whole body as if women, real women have body hair. You know, women are not hairless like, you know, these weird looking cats with no hair. I mean- Or porn. This is the irony yes, is that porn. these images that a lot of these men become are completely divorced from reality as exactly. I, I've always said, I will believe in trans when there's two sets of facts before me, one scientific and one sociological. I want to see one example, one out of all the millions at this point of a man saying that he feels like a woman because he likes cleaning the house or he likes getting paid less. See, there's a real <laughs> connect here. I know it sounds funny, but I'll tell you, the thing is, is that this lobby has skated so quickly, especially over the last 20 years, because it relies on an incredibly entrenched entrenched misogyny within all of our cultures. We don't have to be in Iran or Saudi Arabia. And I'm a specialist in the Middle East and in Latin American studies. And I can tell you something, the idea that people believe that there's only macho culture south of the, south of the border or something is absolutely ridiculous. The, the, the paradigm about sexism is that it exists in many ways. You don't need to just see the effeminate tea drinking British man and wonder if he's gay. Wait a sec, there are other codes that we're missing. And one of the codes that I'm thinking of when you were saying, Marie, about this, this image of the anime that your son is becoming, I was reminded of a very um, lovely, uh, infamous writer from Cuba, uh, Severo Sardui, who wrote an entire book and a series of other books on transvestitism. And he coined the concept hypermujer, the hyperwoman, for what he says the transvestite, not the transsexual, but we'll get there, is doing when he performs, he gave the example of Miriam Makeba, the South African singer. But he says that there is no real to the women that these men become. The whole real is in the imaginary. And he talks about it as the trompe l'oeil uh, of nature, the trick of the eye. It's all about aesthetics. And this is mm. something that has shocked me time and time again, because one of you mentioned, in fact, that uh, this has a lot to do in common with anorexia, for instance, but no physician, no psychiatrist in their right mind would suggest that an anorexic is really fat and can you please stop eating no, they're not, yeah they're not going to put them on a diet and give them a diet pill i mean definitely not right yeah i can speak to that too because my daughter had anorexia from the time she was nine through the teenage years and 
I naively thought when we started this road, I saw so many similarities between the two, between what my daughter had gone through, what my son was going through. And I expected the same kind of logical, scientific, evidence-based approach to treating my son as had been given to my daughter. Like you said, I mean, it, and, and the thing about all the things that you mentioned, Julian, and what we're talking about, it would even be okay, you know, if have these boys cross-dressing, be the new goth, be the whatever, go through their stages, you know, sow their wild oats, believing they were women for a season, and then grow up and some would stay, you know, trans and most would not. The problem is the medicalization of it. That is the problem. That is the problem. That it goes from this social contagion fad. I mean, my son's mental health provider believes that this is a fad for my son. And this is a sexuality expert who's seen so many people come through his practice. And he's like, this is a fad. This is social contagion for him. But what's so dangerous is that he has doctors, you know, I don't even know if they buy into the delusion or just want to make money off of him or whatever. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. But the fact is my son, my 21-year-old brilliant kid is now being given medication that is not only changing his body, but causing a whole litany of potential health problems. And if he continues, he's been on it for about seven months, he will be a medical patient for life. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. I can speak from experience about hormones because I did IVF in the 90s. And um, they put me on the Lupron and I had such a drastic reaction to it. Um, the first IVF cycle had to be abandoned because it put me into temporary menopause and the eggs would not grow. Uh, the second time they gave me one one thousandth, what they call a micro flare, and the, you know, the eggs got fertilized, but they just didn't stick around. And then the third time it happened again, it thrust me right back into menopause. And here I am in my thirties, I'm sweating at meetings. <laughs> but, um, but then the worst part of it was that I started having heart rhythm issues on the third cycle. And um, I went to a cardiologist who told me that there was no question in her mind that these um, hormones were causing a problem. I still have the heart rhythm problem. I have to take medication every single day to avoid going into AFib with this stuff. I took Lupron as well about 10 years ago when I tried to get pregnant. And I did one cycle because when I took it, I thought I'm, I'm going crazy. That was my reaction to Lupron was I'm losing my mind. When I read that they were using Lupron on children, I thought, are they out of their freaking minds? Because yeah. I'm a very centered, very stable, emotionally person. I don't like things happen in my life and I don't tend to lose it. That I thank God I had taken time off to do that cycle, but I decided then and there I would not do it again. As it turns out, it was not necessary, but uh, because I later was able to get pregnant, but the reality is that 
these hormones for an adult woman are serious. I had a WTAF week of my life and you have had serious health repercussions because of it. Right. Right. And I don't know if it's going to shorten my lifespan. I have no idea. Plus, in addition, in my 20s, I was prescribed the birth control pill because my periods were so horrible. And I ended up almost going to the ER after the first month. And a doctor in New York said to me, you cannot take the pill. I don't care how low of a dose in the future they start prescribing lower dose. You cannot take it. You are on the verge of a heart attack or a stroke. You are one of the few women that cannot take hormones. Right, right. So we have a medical system that is complicit with this because mm -hmm. as you, know, you are aware now, this has been a scandal in the UK in Australia and New Zealand, but it's taken a little longer for us Americans to wake up to what's happening. A large That's part a of it. Of yeah. There's a lot of money. The guardian in the U S was paid a quarter of a million dollars to cover the trans issue. I uncovered mm. this last year. I wrote about it, wow. but I'll tell you, I have, I'm working on a new project about big pharma and it's links to the whole rollout of vaccines for this virus we're living through. And mm -hmm. one has to wonder why a major news hub, one of the most important, if not the biggest news agency on the planet is hosting conferences for every big pharma this fall. And it's not just about COVID, it's also about these hormones or the fact mm -hmm. that we're given more information on those annoying restless leg syndrome infomercials from way back about the dangers of them than we are about these hormones for which the dangers are actually quite severe and they're far greater. Were your children given informed consent about what these hormones would do, especially after one visit? Your, your son, Marie, got hormones after one visit? One, yes, one visit. And his, his therapist, his mental health therapist, was ready to provide a letter. And my son had been told this, that he would provide a letter to his medical provider saying why he should not get the hormones. So my son went out of state and on the first visit to an OBGYN, like why, why in the heck would an OBGYN be treating men? Okay. First of all, she's not an endocrinologist or any, but um, he, I read the informed consent out of her website and it mentions a few things, what it does not mention. And if you would allow me to, I would read you, um, are this every single thing that I'm going to read here has a study that is attached to it, like an actual medical study. So I'm going to call it transgender healthcare and then tell you what it does. So transgender healthcare damages hearts, damages bones, leads to deviant brain aging, leads to insulin sensitivity, leads to autoimmune diseases like lupus, causes a lower IQ, leads to multiple sclerosis, can lead to hippocampus shrinking, um, QT interval studies, which is what um, um, Dee mentioned, happened to her with the, the heart rhythm, uh, to increase risk for breast cancer, to scleroderma, which is a connective tissue disease um, that hardens the skin and, and scars the organs. Uh, this is just, a few of the things that can go wrong. 
Uh, there's also studies that show shrinkage in uh, the gray matter in males. This is for men. This is, this is what estrogen and Lupron and all of these drugs uh, are doing to these boys. Um, never mind the fact that uh, they also are sterilizing them, chemically castrating them. Um, and, um, you know, when they're children or teenagers or vulnerable young adults with autism, my son is 21, but his emotional maturity is probably that of a 13 year old. And that is true for a lot of our kids. Uh, not only are they not 25, the age when typically the brain matures, that's for neurotypicals. I mean, when you're talking about people who have neurodivergencies, who have, you know, autism or ADHD or learning disabilities or other types of, um, you know, like coming from the adoption, these kids may be brilliant. They may have high IQs, but they have no common sense. I mean, they're delayed developmentally and emotionally. Well, and I noticed with our daughter and, and the moms in my group as well, is that they were more mature four years ago. They yes. seem to regress. Yes, they, yes. They yes. regress. And, um, I, and then like, it, it's just mind blowing how, how they were way more mature four years ago. And so immature today. Well, it's also interesting that both of you represent with your children that demographic that is targeted by these diagnoses. And I put diagnoses in quotes, I'm sorry, because mm -hmm. we know that ROGD is basically a shortcut for social contagion and that the two groups targeted are adoptees and these kids with autism. Now, there's been lots written on that. Still, the chug, chug, chug of this machinery is going forward. Have there been therapists speaking out in the US? Because I've interviewed therapists over on this side of the pond who have in fact organized, there's now a group of about 25,000 Australian therapists yesterday I saw, and they were looking for a journalist, so I wrote them who are also pushing back and they're organized, they're organizing. So there are more and more therapists who are realizing that this is damaging. It is not based at all in science. It is not based at all in good therapeutic practice. I have spoken to therapists like Sue Evans, who mm -hmm. was one oh, yes, of- I heard that. Yeah, yeah, she was one of the whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the Tavistock, and mm -hmm. she was able to, with others, including her husband, highlight the ills of that institution. And it is it is coming crumbling down. So far, the High Court with the Kira Bell case has sustained that, in fact, children cannot give informed consent. But that's being challenged again. So we're yes. waiting for that mm -hmm. decision. But we have seen with the Rob Hoogland case in Canada as well, where parents are being demonized. And there's this very strange state takeover of children as if, think back to what the Australian government did with indigenous or what the Canadian government did, and hence the mass graves with indigenous children there, where now we've got over 200 kids murdered, it looks like, in Canada. But instead, now the postmodern version of that is we won't bother putting them in a prison or a Madeleine laundry. We'll just call them trans. And this is being done now before our eyes. 
In fact, they're smarter about it because they're getting parents to foot the bill for all this as well. So there's no state cost. And you, so you have a disproportionate number of adoptees and people with autism being diagnosed as such. You have groups like Planned Parenthood jumping onto this madness. Planned Parenthood. Oh, I wrote them a letter. I wrote them a letter telling them I could no longer support them because this was not reproductive health and they've returned to their eugenic roots. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it gets even more bizarre. I can tell you, as a matter of fact, in the state of New Jersey, under the New Jersey law against discrimination, um, and I, I have the statute right here in front of me, um, there is no affirmative duty for any school personnel to notify a student's parent or guardian of their gender identity or expression. And there may be instances where a parent disagrees with the student regarding the name and pronoun, uh, and they may object to the change request, but school districts should consult their board attorney regarding the minor student's civil rights and protections under the NJ law against discrimination. Staff should continue to refer to the student in accordance with the student's chosen name and pronoun at school and may consider providing resource information regarding family counseling and support services outside of the school district. And in addition, um, that board attorney will be rendering an opinion regarding whether the parents are violating their child's civil rights. It's yeah, a we, law. It's a police yeah, state we, is what it's become. Yeah, we have a family in our um, parent group, boy group, um, that whose son was taken at 16 out of their home because of him reporting it to the school. That's where it started. And this is a two-parent family. It's not like most of these cases happen when they there's divorce custody cases and then there's an affirming parent and a non-affirming parent. The courts always, always seem to side with the affirming parent. This is a mom and dad and children in the family because they would not go along with the name, with the changes, with you know affirming treatment. He was removed from their home, and uh, it 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 will probably blow up, and you'll hear about it. Um, was in this the future. a recent case? But they, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's happening. It was like a couple of weeks ago, about two yeah. weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah. They are, yeah, they are right now at the stage of, um, you know, waiting for a court date. Uh, the state wants to take their kids, and you're you're talking about this ga- the state not footing the bill. No, this case. Uh, the family, the affirming glitter family that took their son in uh, as foster family is getting hundreds and hundreds of dollars per month. So the state is footing the bill. Well, putting um, that side of, of the bill, but if they expect yeah. parents to foot the psych, you know, the therapy bills, they expect the parents to keep a roof over yes. these children's head when it's, an, it's interesting, you note the regression because I think this whole culture, the cult is a regressive cult. It is adults. And you see this with people even in their thirties and I've met some in their forties, they want to go back and have a childhood again. And they do it through the auspices of a new identity. Come on, let's just look at other parallels that would have people laughing on the floor if it were a film, like the you know character getting a red Corvette at the age of 60. Um, you know, mm-hmm. There's so many parallels to what this means for, I'm talking about grown adults going back and doing this, but this is happening. I've seen it in the UK where this transitioning for grown adults has become a replacement for the Corvette. 
or, or a replacement for going to an ashram in India. So people are trying to rediscover themselves. And something that you said earlier on, both of you, when um, the, the, the secret, the coming out, this is a very strange cut and paste from my community because I never even got it when people would say, when did you come out? And I'm like, I've always been out. Like, I don't, what is this? I don't like the performative nature that I'm expected to pull for people of these coming out stories. Um, the, the reality is that the trans lobby has replicated in a very weird way, the coming out story, because the idea is, is that everyone comes out. Well, I have news for the world. Most people today aren't really coming out because no one really cares. In fact, our sexuality is the least interesting thing about us. And if it isn't, you're a boring person. You know what I mean? So right. I think that this kind of secrecy and what you're describing from the schools, and that's not the only state that's doing this, by the way, there are other states that are imposing secrecy. Uh, I have to say, how dare they? Because at the same stroke as that is written into law, you have the assumption that parents are supposed to be doing A, B, and C on the list of must-dos on all the Maslow hierarchies of needs for their children and are ultimately responsible for their physical well-being, their emotional well-being. Wait a sec, that's a contradiction right there. And then you know the other contradiction with conversion therapy laws that are coming up. You can't possibly affirm your child as a gay child if the transitioning of their bodies is also being mandated as a must. They, they conflict. So we've got this very strange panorama around us where we're seeing this will to jump back to the 1980s or something, or the 1990s maybe, of people having their coming out story that even in the gay community in the West Village when I was living there then, did not impress me because the West Village was a place of gayness 40 years before. Like people were gay, gay, gay during the war. You, when you start to read about where Billie Holiday sang, it's a fascinating history because it wasn't the ghetto that Hollywood films of the last 30 years would have us believe. But whatever, we are now seeing all of these kids like yours and many others trying to create a new persona for themselves. Hence your references to anime, this whole mm -hmm. remapping of their lives, this truncation, hence your daughter says lies about you to her friend in a chat because they want to deny the past. There's something very perverse socially about what's in the yeah. midst of this movement. And they're not only denying, they're rewriting it. Yeah. They're yes. rewriting. And to go back to your original question, the psychotherapists here in the in the United States, I, I don't see any movement. In fact, I went, I, I myself went back into therapy when this stuff blew up. And I had to teach my own therapist about what this is. And now he's on board and he thinks there is going to be some pushback, but it's going to take some time. But many, many um, in that in that field uh, could lose their positions. You know, they're in they're in practices, and if they um, come out against it. Um, you know, their license may be on the line from what I'm told. Oh, in some states so, they could go to jail. You can go to jail right, if you right. tell a child- Because it could be called conversion therapy. Exactly. Right. So how can you have, let's say, Marie, your son, as you initially thought that he was gay, let's say he is gay and he goes to a therapist that says, I think you might be gay and have issues with 
your body, you might have issues with accepting your sexuality, that therapist in some parts of the world will face 10 years in prison. This is currently the law that's being pushed in Ireland. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's the law that passed in our city just recently um, for minors. Um, so, wait a minute, was it just for minors? No, no, for, for, for anybody actually, yeah. So conversion therapy was banned in my city. Um, yes, I mean, it's, absolute, it's absolutely crazy because um, I think what happens is a lot of the people who need therapy are not going to get it from decent people. And, uh, you know, then the ones who are drinking the Kool-Aid and just going along with it, they're just going to affirm, affirm, affirm and send them on that path towards medicalization. James Essays, who's with the British group of therapists pushing back on this said, what's happening already is therapists are getting so worried what they are going to do if they're at all ethical and don't want to go to jail or don't want to be investigated. They're not going to let anyone in their door who has gender coming out of their mouth. Exactly. That means That's it. Ones will not be seeing the patients. Yeah, they won't. And then so what will but what happened, though, is it used to be I mean, even the WPATH supposedly um, calls for uh, mental health um, assessments and, um, you know, if autism is an issue, but doctors are not following it. So there's no, plastic surgeons aren't. Yes, certainly not. So it's like there is no accountability, no oversight anywhere, anywhere. So we can look at the mental health aspect of it. But to me, since the doctors are doing whatever they want to do, like for my son, for example, if the doctor would have followed even the messed up, not good WPATH guidelines, she would have done her due diligence and she would have said, are you seeing a a psychologist or a therapist, you know, I want to talk to them. Do you give it, do, do, do a release so I can talk to them? She didn't care. She did not care. She gave him hormones. He left with a prescription before his blood work was even back. He had a prescription. And, uh, you know, and I know he didn't give her any of the family background because if he had done that, um, she would have been probably setting herself up for a lawsuit. Have you looked into the WPATH, by the way? Because it is not a real organization. This is something that... No, I, I, it's I an wanna... activist organization. That's exactly what it is. Have you seen the WAJV? It's the World Association of Julian Vigo. See, I just made it up. So we are dealing <laughs> with organizations that are fake. I mean, totally yes. fake, 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 right. fake. This goes back to your Reagan comment, you know, if you keep perpetuating the lie, they are perpetuating the lie that they have quote unquote standards of care. <laughs> That's not what they are. Yeah. No. And they keep saying it and they're coming out with the eighth edition, the eighth SOC standards of care. They're just guidelines. They're not standards of care. And that's what's going to make medical malpractice cases that much more to ramp up because they're coming. They're definitely coming. They will be coming. And in countries, what's saddest about this is in Canada and in the UK, there's a, a cap put on the payments that can be awarded such that mm -hmm. if you are harassed at work, the payment will be much less than it would be in the States. But 
the states is where the payouts are going to happen. We saw it with the tobacco industry, remember? So, well, no, yeah. we just saw, we're seeing it now with the um, opioid crisis. They just did a huge settlement the other day. Oh, I've been writing about the opioid crisis over the years because uh, I discovered, as had many other journalists, that Big Pharma was sending doctors on holidays to Hawaii. Oh, yeah, the Sackler family. Yeah. Yes, the Purdue Pharma. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's happening all over again with the conference. I might even attend this fall in the States that's being sponsored by the world's number one news agency. I can't even stop shutting up about that because I'm very angry about it. But I'll tell you something. You look at WPATH and have you read the Yogyakarta principles? Yogyakarta, that town in Indonesia where a bunch of trans rights activists got together and decided to create the principles oh upon their ideology, resting it for the world to take note. Now, what's interesting about the Yogyakarta principles is that it's complete bollocks, as the British would say. It's based on the writings of people who are not largely doctors. One of the primary contributors is a, is a professor of law, a, a trans-identified woman, who uh, Stephen Whittle. And these are carefully sewn together ideals that work in orchestration with other groups, other trans rights groups that were sewing together their Magna Carta to get the industry of, let's say, press and communications offices around the country to use preferred pronouns and respectful coverage. And this was all sewn together about human rights. So you have one group over here making sure the National Union of Journalists in London would be pe telling people like me to use preferred pronouns. You had the Yogyakarta principles being sewn together by Stephen Whittle and Associates that can tell the world that they are in fact a human rights organization. They're not, they're another lobby. WPATH mm -hmm. has links directly to Harry Benjamin who had direct links to the clinic at Johns Hopkins, which was shut down in 1979 because there was know. severe yeah. evidence to show that none of these procedures was benefiting any of the patients, not to the degree that they should continue. And Benjamin has links all the way back in, it's traceable, I've, I've written about this too, John Money. So- Oh yeah. How- Who was, a, pedo who was a pedophile. Yeah. Oh, okay. So. There's that too, I didn't know this. Um, I do, I've been focusing on the science uh, in my work on this subject. I'll give you another example. Drunk driving in the US is often mandated by judges. They get the person, if it's their first charge, they'll say, okay, I'll spare you 30 days in jail, but you must attend AA meetings. Well, lo and behold, it's been pretty well proven that AA is no more helpful for drinking than a Ouija board. So it does give a sense of community. And there are, I'm sure there are anecdotal cases of people being cured, but there's no cure being helped by AA, but there is no scientific basis that it works more than other therapies. In fact, there are some studies that say it works far less. So that has been at least put out there in the media, put out there in therapy magazines and publications and psychologists have been discussing this for years. And the next step is to roll back the judges handbooks in the US that send people to do this and maybe come up with a second method, not just that. But this particular subject of what has happened to your children is not even allowed to get that far. 
You see, Rob Hoogland is now pretty much banned from speaking to the media. You have women getting kicked off Twitter for saying he, when referring to a man who's threatening to rape her, somehow Twitter thinks the rape threats are okay, but the woman's kicked off. We've been there, seen that. And now we have school counselors, schools, curriculum. Like, even if you're against, I've talked to right-wing Christians who even understand the necessity to teach sex education, but why are they teaching gender? There is no fact to it. So this is the problem. We, the pendulum has not swung too far. It's actually swung out of the universe. Yes. It's, it's all logic, but that's, again, the thing that helped me the most to understand this was talking to Stephen Hassan and just framing all of this into a cult. It's like massive delusion, um, and, you know, yes. it, and the scientists and the doctors and the therapists and government and media and education and everybody is like buying into this massive delusion. Like they're all like in some sort of post-apocalyptic state, mind state. But, you know, you can't keep ignoring the detransitioners who are growing every day. And I honestly think it's going to be a combination of detransitioners and parents and you know, uh, people like you, um, Julian, speaking out. Uh, the good news is we are getting heard more. I mean, um, if you compare even Twitter and, um, you know, podcasts and things like that with a year ago, like I know you've been doing this for several, you know, years, but you were kind of alone doing this for several years. Right now, there's a lot of people who are starting to out about it and uh, maybe it's because d and i move in this circle of parents that we're hearing it a lot but i think it's starting to trickle down um you know where people are saying why is this being pushed down our throats why 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 would you have nina west um doing a um you know pride parade in blues clues to, to toddlers i mean what is that all about I think people, I think they're pushing so hard that they're starting to get some pushback. Yeah, there, um, it's interesting about Stephen Hassan. Um, I had started reading his book earlier this year and I connected with the mother of the child who helped get my daughter down the rabbit hole. And she was reading Hassan's book at the same time. And then a month later, Maria Keffler, uh, who's from Partners for Ethical Care, came out with a book called Detrans and Detox, How to Get Your Child Out of the Transgender Cult. And the mother, I gave her a copy of the book and she asked why I was reading Hassan's and I said, well, I thought it was a cult. She said it is because I myself was in a cult when I was younger. Um, and so she recognized all the signs of the cult. Well, let's deconstruct cult for a moment because what's interesting is we see cult and I'm sure your children would say, but they're my friends, but they mm -hmm. support me. And mom, you kicked me out of the house. So you're not, so, you know, they'll guilt trip. They'll do the whole thing. The way we see cults is somehow this exceptional, subterranean, concealed or secretive group of people. They don't represent obviously a large tranche of society, hence they're a cult and not society. And we tend to view cults negatively because they're hidden and because there's so few members. And 
you know, I'm sure cult members, I don't know if there's ever been a documentary made about cult members that like their cult, but what's pernicious about this particular cult is that it's completely based on lies. I mean, you think of Jim Jones. I mean, what kind of promises did he give to those people before they literally drank that Kool-Aid? Mm-hmm. He was telling at least half truths. I mean, it is a horrible thing what he did, but this cult has zero truth to it. I was writing years ago about this doctor in LA who was telling parents and other clinicians at various meetings, the children know as young as one, if they are trans, they will rip out their barrettes if they oh, are yeah. a girl thinking they're a boy. Aaron said, yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah. and I'm talking about. And, and then, you know, I infiltrated one of the trans groups that was created by Jazz Jennings' mother, and my jaw fell to the floor. And I refused to watch the Jazz Jennings show. I've watched clips for things I've had to write, because I think that that itself is some kind of carnival slash circus. It's cruel that even, I have to wonder, I believe Bravo produced it, but how was this ethically passed? And what will they do when they get the lawsuits? Oh yeah. Because mm -hmm. this was a very cruel social act of torture of this child. I think he has had and still has so many problems. I just saw a picture of him the other week he is now becoming extremely unhealthily obese. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. And and this is not, he was never the picture of happiness. He was the picture of someone being very carefully coerced down this path. And I'm not one to blame parents for this. I blame the media. I blame the media more than the doctors because at a certain point, the doctors must do what the patient must want. And the media has pumped this. So we see very few resources for parents. I started to get email within one day of the publication of my first piece in 2013. And I published it with Counterpunch, which is based in California. And when I published it, one of the people I interviewed was harassed. This was a person who led a gay and lesbian center in London. And he got pushback from a trans person that worked at the organization he led. He asked me to remove what he had said. And I said, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that because we spoke in good faith. And I saw very quickly that if my subjects of the, of the article were being harassed, what was I going to face? Well, that was day one when I hadn't yet received the death threats. A week later, over a hundred death and rape threats later, I understood the pressure. So we have absolutely no support for parents who were writing me in droves. They still do. But I think my piece was the first piece they had read on this subject. And they were flipped out. Parents in Canada saying, every doctor here is confirming. And I don't know what to do. And I felt very helpless because I would start to get online and look for a therapist near them and even call up the therapist and say, what is your approach to this? Like, it was insane. I'm a journalist, but I was trying to help parents because clearly, even today, it's verboten to suggest that the watchful waiting method might be the best. This is the, this is the method that's used in the Netherlands. This is the method that more and more is being adopted as countries are getting very worried about lawsuits, where in socialist medicine countries will rip the, the structure of that economy apart.
So what have you learned through all this? And I imagine now you are two of many parents of your organization, GenSpect. Can you tell me about how that formed and what you are seeing amongst your cohort parents? Um, well, it, it formed, um, it sprang, I think, from a support group that was being led by Dr. Stella O'Malley out of Ireland. I, I honestly don't know how I found it, but I did find it last summer. And it was for parents who were going through this. And um, there we were, a bunch, mostly moms. Um, our first few sessions were all sharing, crying, you know, just kind of feeling hopeless. And then uh, a mother in our group who lives in Florida was uh, complaining that the school would not respect her uh, decision not to allow the kid to choose the name. And she mm -hmm. said it was a school board policy. So I jumped on that website for that county and I saw it was not in fact a written policy. So this was somebody behind the scenes who drafted her own policy. But I wrote, I wrote a letter for that mom to that school director and told her how vulnerable the child was, you know, in the voice of the mother, right? Well, the school listened and they, they backed down. So the next thing you know, Dr. O'Malley asked me to send her a copy of that letter. And before I knew it, um, it was circulating all over the country. I stopped being despondent. I stopped crying and I got angry. I got really angry and I became an activist. And so did the other moms in our group. We have so much talent. We've got research physicists, we've got media specialists. And the next thing you know, we realized we can pull ourselves together and pool our talents to come up with this amazing organization. And it was done in relatively short period of time. I'd say about three months. Um, but yes, it just, we just pulled it all together and, um, and it's been well-received and it's still in, in its nation stages. We've got plans to do a lot more than what you see right now. Um, How many of you are there in the group? Oh, I, I honestly don't know because, um, you know, there's a core team. You can see that on the website. You can see who the core team is and you can see who the advisors are. But behind that, there's a wall of other people that are out there looking for opportunities to advance the mission. Um, and it's international. Like it is international. We're, we're, from... we're Australia and Canada mm -hmm. and Europe and United States. Um, that's just right Brazil. off the top of my head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Brazil. Brazil, yeah. yeah. And, um, and it's going to get larger. In all my research, one common thread flows through this, what you are sadly experiencing. And it's a, a strange thing for me to say because I am I'm a leftist. Uh, I see a relationship between the kinds of people identifying as transgender and economic class. Yes. Primarily. I don't want to say this as a rule, but I'm not seeing a lot of poor people do this. I'm not seeing many people from the lower middle class doing this. I'm seeing this coming from the middle class, the upper middle class, and above. Yeah, with one, yes, one I, exception, I, and that is children in foster systems mm -hmm. are actually, true. what we're hearing is they're being preyed upon, okay, by people with an agenda. And that's scary. That's scary stuff because these kids are already disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I, I when, um, Dee was talking, I was thinking about that when she was saying we are talented. Uh, literally almost all the parents in our groups are parents who have a college education, at least a four-year college yeah, education. Yeah. We have 
um, advanced degrees, we have PhDs, we have medical people, um, very, very bright people. And like we, there was a survey that was done of our boys, um, I think about 60 plus parents responded. And there was something like almost 80% of, if, or 85% of the boys had IQs above 130. Brilliant kids. So these are like very smart kids um, from smart parents and families, professional, very, there are some people who are very um, affluent. Um, and it's almost like these kids just have this entitlement. It, it's a whole other show, but a lot of the, the trends, and I didn't talk about this, was my son started at the same time, or maybe even before he started talking about trends, he started talking about critical theories. Um, you know, he became a socialist. He, you know, he was like down with the man and down with the, you know, the structures and down with everything. And this is a spoiled kid, entitled, who has got everything given to him, sitting with his expensive computer equipment, becoming a socialist and uh, thinking that the world owes him everything. I mean, it, the, the, the cognitive dissonance is out of the world. And I think I agree with you. I think it is an affluent where, where it breeds socially. It is, I think, a quote unquote disease of affluence that is hitting these kids. Um, unless like Dee said, they are being preyed upon. Now, this hasn't um, taken root in South America, for example. Um, you know, the International Monetary Fund with the UN try to push it on a lot of these South American countries. And basically, yes, the mothers and fathers and grandparents, and they went on the street and they created this incredible campaign called Comis Hijos No Te Metas, Don't Mess With My Kids. And it was so successful that nobody, I mean, it was like they, governments, even leftist governments that basically are very progressive and very woke or try to be, could not um, withstand the pressure from those families. And honestly, I think if family, family I, I've said this before, I think that we need to be more afraid of what is happening to our children than we are of being canceled. Now, parents with younger kids are very vulnerable because their kids can be taken away from them. Um, but, you know, I think that more parents, more neighbors, more community need to rise up against this, like the parents did in South America, and we would succeed.
Thank you.